This is One Bills Live, presented by Kaleida Health. All right, welcome into a Thursday edition of One Bills Live. Chris Brown, Steve Tasker with you. Hope everybody had a good Valentine's Day with their significant others. You had dinner and a show, didn't you? Yeah, we went to Shay's last night and saw a funny girl. Good for you. Um, <clears throat> the the lead girl in that was is super talented. She's got a pipe. She's got a nuclear reactor as a voice. Wow! It's um, it's like that Bar- good. It's like Barbara Streisand. You know oh wow! I mean? It's it's one of those. I mean, she would I, people were killed like, it. People were like, wow. Yeah, you know, it was great. Well produced, well acted. Music was great, and Shays is, yeah, brilliant. It was great. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, it was great. Um, unfortunately, we and we would be remiss if we don't address this. Uh, there was a much more somber event that took place yesterday, and that was the violence at the conclusion of the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade and gathering in downtown Kansas City to celebrate their latest Super Bowl victory. It unfortunately ends in violence with three suspected shooters killing one and wounding 21 others, 11 of whom were children ages 6 to 15. And perhaps the most sobering part of this is it was the 48th mass shooting in our country in the first 45 days of 2024. That's right, more mass shootings than days of the year. And that's not the first time our country has outpaced days with shootings. Yesterday alone, there was a mass shooting also in Washington, D.C., where three officers were shot in the line of duty. And in Atlanta, there was a shooting at Benjamin Mays High School. That was all yesterday, which is a, is a small example of how shootings, mass shootings, outpace the days of the year in this country. Uh, Yesterday was also the sixth anniversary of the Parkland shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, Uh, a year and a day after the shooting on the Michigan State University campus. So President Joe Biden actually tweeted out and addressed Kansas City, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C., where these three shootings took place, asked for citizens to make their voices heard with their congressmen and women. Congress, we know, nothing seems to get done. Um... When it comes to banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and strengthening background checks and keeping guns out of the hands of people who have no business owning one, Um, it's it's become all too common a topic. And I don't know. I'm not desensitized to it because it's it's shocking and disappointing all at the same time. It's I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to get political with this, but I'm just going to say, as a country, we should be embarrassed that this is the state of affairs these days in this country, where it doesn't matter where you live here. Walk out your door, could be a victim of a mass shooting, because it can literally happen anywhere, anytime, any day in the United States. Uh, the Kansas City police have reported that it was not anything except an argument between a few people. It was not terrorist. It wasn't some... Yeah, it was not terrorist motivated. It wasn't terrorist. It wasn't extremist. It it was just two people got into an argument. Um, And somebody's packing. And some... Yeah, more than one person, obviously, was packing. So there's that. And if if we want to look for the, the positive out of this, the response by the police and law enforcement there in Kansas City was unbelievable. 
Now, naturally, you're going to have law enforcement on hand for a gathering of this size, just for traffic control, ingress, egress, those kinds of things. So a lot of them were on hand already. But talking about springing into action, uh, they were outstanding. And there were some Chiefs fans who helped apprehend one of the shooters, literally tackling him uh, when he tried to escape. So uh, we salute those people, both, you know, regular everyday citizens as well as the law enforcement that got the situation under control in short order. But I, I'm, I happen to be on a, a text loop with other radio broadcasters in the league, you know, and we discuss things from time to time. And we were having a discussion about a completely different topic yesterday, right when this was started to unfold. And immediately everybody started checking in on the loop with Kansas City radio broadcaster Mitch Holthus to make sure he was okay. Like we're all on the text loop saying, "Hey, you all right? Like everything good? Did you guys get out of there okay?" And um, fortunately, he and the rest of the people that were broadcasting the parade were unharmed. But you know, he he was commenting on what a what a sad day it turned out to be for something that was supposed to be a celebration. And then you know what he said after that? He said his fear is that going forward, when NFL clubs win the Super Bowl, it's gotten to a point where they're not going to do a parade. Instead, they're going to do the celebration inside the team's stadium where they can control security far better than they can in an open public space. Yeah. And I thought about that, and I was like, man, can you imagine if for the first time – the Bills finally win the Super Bowl, and they got to do the thing in their stadium. Not that that's awful, but yeah. you kind of want to share it with the community out in the community, and you would hate to see gun violence like this force people to take different action to prevent such a thing from happening again. Yeah, it's a shame. That's, it really, really is. Yeah, it is. It was, and it's tragic. And there's, you know, people lost a person lost their life, and. And, you know, uh, there's most of the kids that were, they're all 16 years and younger. You can imagine how many kids were at the Super Bowl parade, right? I mean, it's a whole new generation of fans. Uh, Yeah, and you got parents wanting to have their kids experience We were watching it, and in fact, it was off. um, And the first I saw it was on a timeline on Twitter. And uh, I was like, wow. And then slowly but surely, it it, it eked its way through the other avenues. And certainly on... on, uh, I was also on Sirius XM, and they, they were there as well. They had people on the scene. Obviously, a ton of uh, national media, yeah. sports media were there. and So you got to hear a, a, you know, a blow-by-blow of what was going on and what happened. But, um, yeah, it was – it's uh, it's tragic. It's always tragic, and it always leaves us the same with the same feelings. And all too often, it's the same feeling um, that we all share. So – that stinks, and, yeah. and I feel bad for the Chiefs, and I feel bad for the city of Kansas City, yeah, we for should. the fans. You know, it's just because it. You know, well, now for a while at least, this is the most memorable part of their championship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, and and that's not even the reason it's tragic, right? So hopefully all those people that were wounded in the shooting are able to recover. As we understand it, there, there are only a few 
who are inpatients at the hospital. Most will be able to be released in the next day or so. So that's good news. Um, But one is too many. And uh, Kansas City lost one of their own yesterday in a senseless shooting at a Super Bowl celebration. Ridiculous. Um, The Chiefs players, there were a handful of them who should be applauded as well. Naturally, with all of the young people on hand, they're going to get shook by something like this. And some of the players, before boarding buses to get out of there themselves, actually tried to calm down a few fans that were there, you know, not knowing where to go, what to do. And some players hung around to calm those people down until authorities or loved ones could arrive to kind of escort them out of there. Um, So good on the Chiefs players uh, that did right by their fan base and, you know, took care of some people that need a little help uh, when everything was going down. So uh, kudos to those guys uh, for doing that. Uh, We will touch on some other things that happened in the NFL, although they seem rather trivial by comparison. Uh, As we go around the NFL, which is presented by Collider Health, the official health care system of the Buffalo Bills, and the San Francisco 49ers fired Steve Wilkes as defensive coordinator after just one year on the job. You remember that in overtime of the game, Steve? We saw head coach Kyle Shanahan call timeout on that final drive by Mahomes and the Chiefs. Tony Romo suspected and speculated that it was because he grew tired of seeing the soft underneath coverage that Wilkes was calling and basically said, I'm calling a T.O. here. i got to talk to my D.C. And he's like, stop doing that and basically told him to try something else. I'm just going to say this. Steve Wilkes tried everything. He really did. Like, it's not like the guy was pig-headed about calling the same defense over and over and over. The, the problem was he's playing against Patrick Mahomes. It's and the same I, it, thing. Yeah. It makes me wonder, Steve, like you think about all of these coaches that are head coaches in this league who come from an offensive background, and I, I, you know, I could be way off on this, but it makes me wonder, like do they go to the defensive coordinator and say, hey, come on, do something. Like can't you call something to stop this guy? And it's like right. do you realize how hard that is? Like, right. have we you ever see tried to Josh. defend this guy? We see that with Josh. He's look over there in the defensive court. He's trying everything, and the guy's standing over there. he got nothing else to try. So he's trying to do the best thing to kind of maintain some semblance yeah. of making it at least a little hard on him. Minimize the and damage. It, and it's just – it makes it look easy then, right? And that's where he's at. I, this, and I'll, But I'll say this too, and, and I've been watching the narrative about the Steve Wilkes firing uh, this morning. This is seems to be a little bit more – than just about the Super Bowl. Steve Wilkes, I mean, he's I mean, he's now this this will be his third firing over the last handful of years. And there are a lot of people from the outside looking at this like let this guy, you know, he, he put together a Super Bowl defense. Got him to the Super Bowl and they were a very good defense, the top 5 defense, top 3 and top maybe the first defense in the league against scoring, right? Uh they were no slouch at all. This seems to be something about something else. Um, don't know what it is. I have no idea. But it, when you look at the big picture, it seems to be uh, not about how he calls a football game. You know what I mean? I, I, that's if it's not. If it is, I, I, I don't get that either because the guy's calling really good football games, and he's you know got his team, the Niners, to the Super Bowl. And he's done very well, and he did very well in Arizona. You, you know. Um, he's got some chops as an NFL coach. Um, 
So this this does not seem to be only about the Super Bowl. Yeah. Either way, he's looking for work, and the timing isn't good because a lot of the music is stopped right. for a lot of teams in terms of filling open positions. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Steve Wil- Wilkes takes a year off or whether he finds his way to another job in the NFL. The Saints have decided to move their training camp out west to California. They're going to go to the Cal Irvine campus. Their practice facility, where they usually hold training camp, is going to still be undergoing renovations this August. So that's the main reason for the move. I always wondered about teams like the Saints. Like, it is stupid humid in Louisiana in August. I don't know how they get through a training camp down there. Like well, 98% humidity? Yeah. I mean, how do you practice in that with a helmet and pads on? Oh, my gosh. Like, it's oppressive. Yeah. Dallas yeah. does it. The Cowboys go out to California to get into the drier air of California, so yes, they're not they stuck in the Dallas. humidity of Dallas in, uh, in August. I mean, that's not why the Saints are doing it. I'm surprised they just, haven't done it before. Me, they don't practice hard anyway. <laughs> They can't even tackle in training. They only get one prize. They're not even going two a days. Yeah. But yes, you're right. It is. It's oppressive. They go high. The difference between today's NFL and back in the days, back in the days, you may as well just stand there in a pair of gym shorts and let guys hit you with baseball bats. That's the physical (laughs) nature of it. Now these guys go out and you may, and it's like running 200 wind sprints. I mean, these guys run and they go fast. NFL practices now are speed-based rather than contact-based. So the humidity still takes a toll. The old days, it was physically brutal. I mean, you get beat up, tackled, pulled to the ground, blocked, all of that stuff. Nowadays, it's about running and running fast and high-intensity breaks and cuts and all of that. So it's it's evolved kind of down that road. So the humidity still, yeah, take. you're right. Can you imagine? Being down in the Gulf Coast I, in July. I don't mind heat, but humidity ruins you need, me. Listen, bro, you need gills to breathe that yeah, air. Yeah, you can't, you can't get good air. That's the biggest there is problem. No, there's more water than air in the air. Yeah. It's because I used to, I, I mean, you get a humid day, you know, and you're, you know, you're playing a sport or something. I just, I used you to remember can, saying to myself, I can't get any good air in my lungs. You can feel it. You can feel the weight of the air when yeah. you're running around out there. It's, it's an amazing did you have a bad? Did you have a bad, oppressively, because Houston is very humid. Was that a bad camp? We like, were in San Angelo. Oh, San Angelo, Texas? Way west. west. And it was dry. dry. It was, the, the legend goes, the year before I was there, it was bad the year I was there, no question, but the year before I got, well, then they could have been, you know, yeah. old man and me. But Back they said last day. year. Last year we had two weeks. It was over a hundred degrees straight. Fourteen days. Yeah. Ten of those days it was over hundred and ten. But it was you know the, the finger quotes Dry little drier heat. Yeah. Let me tell you something. It felt like you had somebody with a blowtorch heating you up. <laughs> it was. It was like, like you, you put your head in an oven. The sun felt like it stung. Yeah. I mean, you were, you know, like sunscreen, sun right everything. Over your back. It was, it was, this was before the heavy days of sunscreen, too, but you guys were putting it on and sweating it off. It was, you walk around out there in West Texas and it is like, it's like, oh my gosh, get, who, who get, lives get, here? Give me some shade. I just want to step out of the sun for just a minute. Yeah. It was that Impressive. bad. It was yeah. that bad. Yeah. 
Crazy. Uh, the Bills have announced their season ticket prices for 2024. If you want more information, you can go to buffalobills.com. Uh, the season ticket package price increases by an average of 10%, but before you you know, get all bent out of shape, realize that the price per game is flat for most season ticket locations, and it's only impacted because the package is increasing from 9 to 10 games. If you remember last year, the Bills lost a home game that went to London, Bills versus Jacksonville, so they lost a home game. And now they get that game back this year. There will be eight regular season home games, two home preseason games. So that is why the total package price goes up. You're getting the benefit of a 10th game instead of nine, as was the case last year. Um, The other cool thing that's going on, the Bills Stadium Experience, the official preview center for New Highmark Stadium, on track to open in March. It's an appointment-only venue, and it's going to provide – fans the opportunity to take an interactive sneak peek at the new stadium along with the opportunity to select their seats. Obviously, season ticket members will have priority access to select seats in the new stadium. All members will have access to comparable or better seats than their existing experience. So from what we uh, have been told, that the ticket office will be reaching out to season ticket accounts later this month. Um, and it is a long and arduous process for yeah, them. The, so don't fret right. You know, if you're not called by the end of February. This is a process that is going to stretch well into March and beyond as they try to give season ticket members, you know, who have you know, been loyal season ticket members for some time, first crack at what they and could be also, looking at in the new facility. And also there is a tier system by how much you pay. I mean, there – the well, industry right. and what we're finding out, and Brent, because Brent and I are trying to stay up on this, and there's a lot in it. But it's an industry, an industry practice that the new stadium. This happens to every new stadium around the country. It's not just Bill. It's not a Bill's decision. It's an industry uh, practice, best practice they call it, where they sell the most expensive seats first and trickle down from there, just like you would in a regular game. Uh, when they sell the new stadium, so and don't so don't think that just because you haven't got called that you're going to get shut out or anything like that. it's not going to happen like that. Um, in fact, they're going to they're only going to sell the, you know, the the very high end ones first and then trickle down through that. And just like this stadium across the parking lot where we're at now, if you're gonna if you're gonna want to go to a game, you're going to be able to afford to go to a game. And just about every single seat in the new stadium is going to be better than the seats in this stadium out here now. Yeah, much was made about the fact that the last row of seats in the new stadium will be 54 feet closer to the playing field than the last row of seats here at Oldheimer. Yeah, you're gonna, so. It's going to be, instead of being built like a, like a salad bowl, this one's going to be more of a shot glass. You're going to be right on top of everything. Yeah. Um, it's going to be it, 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 the seats are going to be better, and if you want to go, you're not going to be priced out. But the people who are willing to pay more are going to get first crack, like it always is for everything. Uh, that's an industry. That's not a bills thing. That's an industry thing by the people who put these stadium deals together. So, um, and you don't have to go to this stadium experience thing that's opened up. You don't have to go there to do it. But let me tell you something. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, I went in and they got they got a huge. Not I say huge. Uh, it's a model, 
a huge model of the new stadium. I mean, the thing is big, and you can see detail and what it's going to look like. Uh, you can, like, st- stand right next to it. It's really cool. Plus, they'll have what the seats are going to feel like, what they're going to look like. You'll be able to plug in your seat number or whatever, or different seat numbers around the stadium and say, what's it look like from here? And they'll have a punch it up, and there it it is. And there it is. That's what you're going to see. A lot of cool stuff with this new stadium that's coming, and and step by step, we're getting closer and closer to it. Yeah. Yeah, Think about it. Brownie, you said it. This coming up, 2024 season, is the next to the last season in this stadium. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. The next to the last season is this one. It's wild. Think about it. Wow. Like it, it feels like it's a long way off, but it's really not. Like it's we got like sixteen it's this year and we got like next seventeen year, and that more is games it. in this joint. Well, hopefully more counting playoffs. Right, but, right, right, right. But, you, but you yes, know I know what you're saying. It's yeah. like less than twenty five games left in this joint. It's wild. Yeah, wild to think about. Amazing. Uh, we know that the new stadium will look vastly different from the old one. Our topic of discussion today, where do you think the Bills will look most different in 2024? Like to see where you think the most change will take place. So where do you think the Bills might look most different this coming season? 803-0550, the number to get on board. This could be an overarching thing about the roster as a whole. It, maybe it's a specific position group that you think is going to undergo a lot of change. Maybe it's an offensive philosophy that you think Joe Brady tweaks with the offense. It could be anything under the sun here, but where will the Bills look most different in 2024? Did anything strike you like right off the top of your head when you thought about this or no? Um, the players is what struck me. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a ton of new guys. Uh, guys like Leonard Floyd that we didn't know before the season when they kind of grew to really love and ex- have expectations for. Uh, guys like Rasul Douglas, who, you know, the season, you know, the guys, he came in midway through the season, a different scenario. But you know what I mean? It's going to be new faces. Um, I, I really believe, too, it is going to look different. But I'm kind of excited to see this coaching staff get their hands on some new faces and stuff because I've seen this coaching staff – or well, with the Sean McDermott's regime, it's going to have a bunch of new coaches too. I'm going to. I'm excited to see what they do. Notoriously, Sean has put out a roster that is maximized. They get more out of the guys they got than most coaches get out of their guys. Mm-hmm. 2017, his first year as head coach, is a shining example of that, where they got accused of tanking before the season started, and they take that roster to the playoffs. That kind of, I'm kind of excited about that. That's what's going to look different to me. The coaching staff, how those players play, and a ton of new faces. Uh, that's where I begin. Yeah, I kind of was even more narrow than that. My scope was, anyway. I, I, I don't know why, but I just feel like – well, I kind of do know why. But I feel, for some reason, because it's looked largely the same for the better part of the last six or seven years, I think the secondary – is going to look most different mm-hmm. in 2024. I don't, I don't foresee Micah Hyde back, his contract up. We don't know what's going to happen with Jordan Poyer, who I think is at least a candidate to be a cap casualty. I don't know what they're thinking upstairs. Um, Dane Jackson is a free agent. 
And Tredavious White is probably not going to be ready for the start of the season with that Achilles injury, which usually takes up to a year to recover from. And that happened in early October. Um, That alone. Oh, and Taylor Rapp's a free agent. He's not a lock to be back either. That's right. So I I think for me, just in terms of change, I, I think their secondary might look most different in 2024 to what it was yeah. in 2023, I, yeah. which might be hard for some people to accept because, you know, we've all be kind of come accustomed to a lot of those primary players that have been back there for Trey, a long time since McDermott got in the door pretty much. Trey White's not going to be on the field opening day, um, I, in my, I don't think. Poyer and Hyde probably won't. So that leaves you with Taron Johnson, Rasul Douglas, Christian Benford, maybe Kyrie Elam. Dane Jackson will be in the mix. Well, he's a free Maybe. agent. Um, yeah, that you know, <laughs> but you will have you will have Milano, and you know Bernard. So yeah, I mean you'll have those guys back, but yeah, I, it's going to be a very different team on that side of the football this year. Offensively, you might look a lot the same, except for maybe wide receiver number two. Yeah, that's I think the. the part of this that gives me a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to go out and do some things um certainly it falls on joe brady to keep that production up and and have him score a bunch of points until that defense gels i still think this is a team that's going to be there at the end of it and have something to say about it let's jump on the phone lines at 803-0550-1888-550-2550 got a couple of lines open for you there right now in terms of where you think the bills will look most different in 2024 but we lead off with ralph in rochester what's up ralph hi good afternoon guys uh, first time caller i love the show <clears throat> i'm interested uh i understand why we're trying to recruit a wide receiver but I'm interested if Matt Milano, uh, it, do you know if he's uh, running, lifting weights? Uh, and Tredavious White, similarly, is he able to work out at all yet from his uh, Achilles procedure? Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah sure but, thing, Ralph. Uh, Ralph, I mean, those guys are at it every day. Every day. Absolutely every day. We've seen Matt Milano in building a lot, walking around, lifting, He's doing out. weight training. But they're also doing rehab, which is stuff that's not really like you wouldn't say lifting or working out, but they're doing things that will get them better. The Achilles thing is is a crusher of an injury for any NFL player or any athlete, uh, and that's going to take a minute for uh, Tredavious to get back to where he's like running and doing all that stuff. But he's here. Uh, he, we've seen him in the building rehabbing and stuff. Now they'll come in touch base for a week or so and then they'll go back home and, and rehab there as well uh, but Milano has been in the build was in the building for the last two and a half at least months of the season uh, walking around working out so yeah these guys they're at it every day that's yeah. all they think about that's all they have to do I mean let's I mean that's their job they got they get paid a lot of money and part of their job is to get themselves ready to play that's all they do these days I would say to Steve's point though both of those players are more in the rehab mode of yes. their recovery. They are not doing football-related activities in any way, shape, or form right now. It's going to take some time. An Achilles injury is usually a calendar year injury from which to recover. And when you think about the position that Tredavious White plays, you know, you're backpedaling, you stick that foot in the ground, plant and drive, you are putting all of your torque on your Achilles every time you stop and drive forward off of it. So that thing has got to be not only structurally sound, 
but strong again. Um, and I believe they still do the surgery this way when they reattach the Achilles from wherever it ruptured. They don't reattach it end to end. They overlap it to make it stronger. And then it's on the player through rehabilitation to get it back stretched to its original length. So you can imagine how much time that takes. Once it's repaired, it's okay, but it's not strong and it's not as long as the other Achilles. So to avoid overcompensation and risking other kinds of injuries, they have to rehab it until it is back to the same length as it was originally, and that's why it takes so long. Yeah, they. Uh, I've I've heard different things about how they do it. There's you know they're always tinkering with the better ways to do it, and I think one of the things they used to like just overlap it and sew it together. Now I think they're do they do end to end. I now? think they're and put a sheath they're on splitting it? it and meshing it together. Oh, is that what they than, do? Then just overlapping it. They're like they're meshing it, interweaving um, it. They're interweaving it with itself. They're so I, I've heard that as okay. well. I don't know if that's maybe the that's case a new technique. I, I think it is. That's the way I heard it, and why I heard it because somebody said that was a new thing. Uh, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but they are all. And I've talked to joint specialists and orthopedic guys. They're always tinkering with better ways to do it. And uh, yeah, but they, you know, the, the body is what it is. You, it takes a while. Yeah, it takes a while, and and not even only, for the highest, yeah, trained athletes on the planet. And think about this too. You got to trust it to be an athlete. Yeah, mental hurdle. You got to you got to like f- be able to forget that your Achilles was ever popped. And think about how hard that is. Well, yeah, especially after Tredavious got over the mental hurdle of believing his knee was better, right. and then that happens. So he's still got quite a mountain to climb. Not saying I'm doubting Tredavious. I'll be the last person to do that. But he's got a long road in front of him still. Um, so. We obviously wish him the best, but it's going to take him some time. I think that's safe to say. And Milano, too, for that matter. So we'll get a better handle on it once we get to April and the players are back in the building for offseason conditioning and things like that. But, yes, suffice it to say, it's still going to take a while for both those guys who are strictly in rehab mode right now. Got to take a break here, but we are wide open for your phone calls all afternoon here. Where will the Bills look most different in 2024? John and Skinny Atlas will lead us off, and we'll get to others holding at 803-0550 when we return. Here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health, it's Buffalo Bills Radio. back here on one bills live on a thursday chris brown steve tasker with you and question on the table today where will the bills look most different in 2024 could be the roster could be the offensive scheme could be anything that you think will look dramatically different for this team come this fall when we go back to the phones we got a lot of people holding we'll rifle through these as best we can but we lead off with john in skinny atlas what do you got for us john Hi, fellas. Uh, thanks for taking my call this morning. I'm a retired physician, and I've been a fantasy general manager of the Bills since 1960. <laughs> um, number one, I thought the offensive line this year was better than it's been in 20 years. And so I would keep the do everything I can the next few years to keep this offensive line going. There was some talk yesterday about 
uh, Ariza, the punter, I know, I think, Chris, you said yesterday that Sam Martin is under contract next year. Right. I don't have any problem. I read all the legal reports about what happened with Ariza in California at San Diego State. Um, He's been cleared. Um, I'm okay with him. I think uh, the safeties, I don't know. um, I heard you guys comment earlier today that you thought uh, Poyer and Hyde would be gone next year. Um, I think Kyir Elam would be a great safety. Um, I know there was talk last year that Benford might be switched um, to safety. Um, Benford seems to be able to be stickier. Uh, He gives up less space than Elam, but Elam is big, he's fast, and comes downhill and he tackles well. He looks like a safety to me. So that's one thing. Kyer Elam and Taylor Rapp is our safeties next year if Poyer and Hyde aren't here. Um, I have some, uh, I, I mentioned I'm a retired physician. I have some experience with people with ACLs, uh, injuries. Um, it takes a year to recover to be even to be able to play, and it seems to be able to take another half year to a full year to knock all the rust off and get, get back to where you were. Uh, I think Von Miller looked like he was getting better and better uh, at, after each game. Um, and uh, now that he's got a, a, the off season to continue to uh, recover, um, I think he may be what we need, and which is we need somebody that can put pressure on the quarterback. Um, I uh, also one of the things that I think we need to do, partly because we're fifty million dollars over the cap, Bean's been kicking the can down the road. Uh, well, Josh was on his rookie contract and his in his uh, fifth year option, um, but that's over now, and now we're each year the cap over-the-cap number has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So I think we need to bite the bullet and do what the Chiefs have done the last two years, and that is go with a huge number of rookies, not just the first and second day picks, but also keeping the third-round guys on the 53-man roster. Um, One of the things that um, I'll use an example. Alec Austin was on our practice squad, and Trey White gets hurt. And we went out and traded a third-round pick, and we bring Trey Wright in for $7 million. And then Alec Austin gets plucked off the practice squad, and he's in um, New, England. New England. And in that last game, he looked like he could play. Um, so I think we need to go with – my overall thing is I think we need to go with younger players – um, uh, and we need to get the salary cap in order. I'm against kicking the can down the road further. Um, so I'll, I'll hang up now and listen to you guys comment. Thanks yeah. a lot. All right. A lot in there, John. Uh, first and foremost, I think you can take care of a lot of the cap issues by doing a simple conversion on Josh's existing contract. You can get rid of about half of that number, uh, just by doing that. So I would anticipate that happens. I would anticipate an extension for Dion Dawkins, uh, who's only got a year left on his deal and is still playing at a Pro Bowl level uh, and is only 29 years old. So there are, I think there are a number of avenues the Bills can go down to alleviate themselves of the cap issues that they have. Um, they may have to do some restructures, which would kick the can down the road. If you're telling them to bite the bullet, I think you need to expect the team to take a step back. Because now you're lopping people off the roster if you're going to bite the bullet. That means somebody like Jordan Poyer would not be on the roster. Um, 
There'd be other people with high price contracts that you may choose to eat um, to save $9 million. Even though you might take on $10 million in dead cap money, you'd be saving, you know, you'd be lopping off 19 and getting a net gain of 9 you know, something like that. So I don't think they want to bite the bullet. I think they want to remain in contention, keep the core intact. But I do think they are going to get younger because of that. Uh, to your point, John, I think they're going to have to nail this draft and get younger. And then just really quickly with the Alex Austin comment, their seventh-round draft choice out of Oregon State who played corner, he did not make the 53-man roster coming out of camp. They tried to put him on the practice squad, and Houston plucked him off of there immediately, week one. He was never on the Bills practice squad because the Houston Texans grabbed him immediately and put him on their 53-man roster Probably about week six or seven, they released him, and he wound up in New England where he was on the 53-man roster for the remainder of the season. So the Bills never had an opportunity to call him up from their practice squad because he never landed there. He got claimed on a waiver claim. So did Nick Broker, their six-round pick, the guard they drafted out of Old Miss. He never made it to their practice squad. He got plucked off the roster, I think by Houston as well, if I remember right. Um so, yeah, it, when you're a deep roster like the Bills have had, it's hard to groom young, late draft choices that you think have a future in this league because teams whose rosters aren't as strong are grabbing them immediately to put them on their 53. Right. And it's not a Brandon Bean issue going youthful on the roster. Um, now, he, he's always put rookies on there, and that's his. He'll, they'll be on the 53 and the practice squad and all that because Brandon Bean says there. But to play him, that's on Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott says who plays of the 53 guys and who's up from the practice squad and all of that. Uh, he'll ask for those guys. Now, those two guys are, are in lockstep of what they think and their beliefs and how it should work and which guy's here, which guy's there and all of that. And Brandon Bean's not going to, you know, totally blow off what Sean McDermott wants done with the roster. Uh, but whatever disagreements they are, there are, Brandon Bean has the final say. That's the way it works in the NFL because the GM's got to be able to make these moves, and sometimes they happen fast, and you don't have time to talk to the guy or have discussions or watch film or do all that stuff. you got to know the stuff and make the move. So the general managers in the NFL are the guys who pick the 53 guys. If you're talking about you got to play, that's on Sean. He has to decide whether a rookie is worthy of playing or not. He has to make that decision. And so that's, that's you know, one of the things you said, you got to make the move that, listen, they're going to they're gonna put the guys on, the best players on the roster that they can, whether they're young or old. They're going to get them. But they're going to have 10 draft picks, or at least at this point, they're going to have 10 draft picks to choose from. Those 10 guys have a chance to get on the roster. If you get all 10 of those guys on the roster, that's something. I don't think it'll happen, but that's really something. Now, how many of them play and play a lot? That's the real question, and that's what we're kind of talking about throughout this offseason. Has, Sean has shown the, the willingness to play young players, but it's rare. It's not always, and it's not always the guy you think. Christian Benford, Kyrie Elam being the, the most prominent example of that. You got a sixth rounder playing ahead of a number one, and it has been for, has been for two years now. Uh, Maybe that changes with a new coaching staff and the way, you know different set of eyes on those that group and all that. Um, but you're right. Uh, that's 
that's a Sean McDermott issue playing you, you, the young guys on the roster instead of the old guys, not a Brandon Bean issue. And then real quick with your Kyrie Elam to safety argument, I think they just want to get Kyrie focused on corner. I don't think they want to throw a curveball at him now when he may finally get an opportunity to really challenge for a starring role. You know Tredavious White is not going to be ready at the start of the season, so now it's Kyrie Elam, Christian Benford, and Rasul Douglas. Those are your three primary guys fighting for starting roles. I think they want him in that mix, um, not to mention the fact that it's easier to find a safety than it is to find a cover corner, which is what Kyrie Elam is. Um, there are corners, but I think developing one and getting one to be you know, a lockdown-type player, a little bit harder to find on the boundary than it is to find a middle-of-the-field safety. Uh, let's get back to the fo- phones, and we go to Tim and Charlotte next. What's up, Tim? Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. <clears throat> um, I just, just want to throw a couple of different things at you. First and foremost, uh, how cool is it that our star quarterback is out playing golf with Tiger Woods? Probably the greatest of all time. First off, <laughs> yeah. that's not being talked off about enough. But, uh, um, and then just to kind of touch on your guys' point about the Twitter question today, um, I really think the DB room, um, we're going to see a youth movement there, and I'm all for it. Um, you know, too much, too many of these teams out here have two, three, four, sometimes even wide receivers that are just running away from people. And, uh, I really love to see, and I'm with you, Chris. I don't think Kyrie's time here is done. You kind of just stole my thunder there. I think the dude's a stud. It's just going to take a, a perfect situation to kind of get it out of him. Um, so I'm really looking forward to him. And I don't know if Trey White's going to be back on the roster next year or not, but you know, Brandon Bean has a tough decision there. Um, so I think the DB room, oh, and obviously the two brand new safeties plus that we're probably going to have to get out of this draft. Um, and then the third thing, I just want to ask you guys a question because you guys always ask us questions and uh, we never get to hear your thoughts. So I'm going to propose a question for you. You could take rather uh, either or, excuse me. First one is go wide receiver at 28 and then probably pick up a guy later in the draft, round four or five or something like that, maybe even round six. Or because we all know that we want two of them. Or do you take the best defensive lineman available at 28? Because, again, all those guys are getting pushed down with the quarterbacks, the corners, um, and the wide receivers. Take the best defensive lineman we can at 28 prospect. And uh, whether that's inside, outside, doesn't matter. And then maybe double up on day two where Chris – or, I'm sorry, Steve did the example yesterday where trading up for Marvin Harrison, which has never <laughs> ever happened – but when you trade up from that late in round three, the cost is much less. So go get your guy, move up in round three, um, even if you give up a day a day three pick. Um, I just want to know which one would you guys rather do or see the Bills do. Thanks. Yeah, sure thing, Tim. Um, when you're picking 28th, you're kind of the victim of the circumstances that unfold in front of you. So I think all of us ideally would love to get a stud alpha male receiver in round one where the better ones tend to lie. But – the board may fall in such a way where that's just not in the cards, and you have to pivot. I mean, the Bills had to do that last year. I think they would have loved to draft a receiver in round one last year, but the, the run happened right in front of them. So what did Brandon Bean do? He pivoted, and he got the best tight end in the draft. Um, he may have to pivot again this year, because when you're picking down there, you have to have a contingency plan. So I think it's very possible they could have to pivot and take a you know a premier defensive tackle because all the edge rushers, corners, receivers, and quarterbacks push the best talent in the class at defensive tackle down there. You can get the best defensive tackle in the class at 28, you do it. Just like he had the opportunity to get the best pass-catching tight end in the class you know, at 23 or wherever the heck they were last year and did that. 
So I, I think that's what it's going to be predicated upon. I mean, in an ideal world, yeah, you get the alpha dog receiver in round one and figure the rest out later. But I don't know if picking at 28 is going to allow that to happen. Right. And you're right. There may be a guy that falls at the de- from a defensive line standpoint down to 28, and all of a sudden he's going to be a way better defensive lineman than the receiver that's left on the board. You know, you're the, getting a sixth wide receiver or whatever it is. You may like that better. And but I'm with you. I, I think they either take one at number 28, a wide receiver that is, or if they take a defensive lineman at 28, they take a receiver at 60 and at 99. I think they, I think they get two out of the first three picks uh, or one if it's a wide receiver at 28. That's what I think. Uh, now they may not because the way once you get down once you get down to 60th pick and the 99th pick, which is the Bills' third pick in this draft, who knows? I mean, it's a value exercise. Who then. knows? Who knows? Yeah, it's a it starts to become more and more hard to evaluate. Which is why more often than not, GMs will default to doing what the board tells them, because right. that's what the last eight to ten months of They'll- having evaluators scattered all over the country was for. So when you get to that point, you know what your value is and you know what your best value is, regardless of position, at that spot because the board, which has the intel of 30-some-odd people on your staff, is pooled together on that board to tell you this is where you go right now based on who's left. What happens is they put all the names on the board, even the guys that they have no shot at getting, the Marvin Harrison Juniors, all that, and they rank them if, if in a vacuum – which guys would they take if they were the only team in the league? And what order would they take them? Let's go down, and they go all the way through 200, right? And they do that dispassionately, looking at them as a pro prospect, not college uh, production or what it only is, you know, as it's factored in. Who's going to be the best pro for us in our system with our guys, you know, right now? Who, who would we pick yeah. in a vacuum? And they rank them. For like 200 guys and whoever and then all of a sudden they get down to their 99th pick and they got a guy that they would have taken if they had had him at 35 and all of a sudden he's still there so they jump up and they take that guy that's that's how that works um yeah and that's why it's impossible to anticipate break time for us but we're wide open for phone calls so we'll get to more of yours when we return here on one bills live stay tuned Right back here on One Bills Live. I want to get right back to the phones where people have been waiting patiently to Bill in Knoxville. What's up, Bill? Good afternoon, guys. Love that I was able to get off early to call in. Uh, first off, Steve, I love that you're still around. Love that you're doing this. That brings me back to when you were on one of the many posters of on my wall in my youth. So I appreciate <laughs> you, my friend. You bet. And, uh, of course, Chris, love you too, man. I just don't have the same history. That's fine. <laughs> no offense taken. Um, but it's as far as the uh, biggest changes I'm seeing, um, I'm looking forward to the defensive changes because, just like you said, uh, McDermott has historically so far for us gotten more out of his players than expected. Um, I'm hoping we don't spend too too many assets on that side and and just get the most out of who we got or who we can get. Um, and of course, Trey Trey White. I'm missing seeing him around. I'm missing his goalie academy and. Just him as a person, I hope for the best for him and hope that he can make as close to a full recovery as possible. 
but between the D-line and the secondary changes and Hyde retiring on us and the maybe on Poyer, I expect that to be the biggest change. And then just the other note that I have, and then I'll hang up and let you guys talk. Um, Joe Brady with an offseason under his belt and the uh, coming out party of James Cook. I look forward to seeing uh, when he's got some more time to come up with some things, what kind of plays we can see. Yeah, good stuff, good. Bill. I, I would agree with you. Here's the thing: we've talked a lot about you know the the free agents and and the, how the defensive side of the ball is going to be gutted because of you know the salary cap and the, because of the the guys aging out and the contracts up and the free agents that that came up on that side of the ball. The offense should be pretty much intact. In fact, may get better if they can get that guy across from Diggs, right? Uh, and Joe Brady coming in now with all of those guys coming back. All the offensive linemen, the tight end room, the running back room at the top with James Cook, Diggs, Khalil Shakir, all of that. You got all those guys, and Josh, of course, coming back with Joe Brady. They can build. You know, they're not just, they're not going to have to tear it down, start from scratch and see who can play and then decide who can play well. And do, they're going to be able to like step forward offensively, you would think, particularly Joe Brady, because now it's, it's his offense. It's his room. It's his creativity. It's his, you know, beliefs. Um, and, and we're going to get a chance to see it. Yeah. Be very uh, that's, inter- that's fun. Be very interesting to see what tweaks and changes he makes. Are they wholesale changes where you're like, wow, wasn't expecting that? Or are they more subtle changes? I think one thing he is going to change, and, and I would imagine it would be for the better, is to make James Cook the focal point of a lot of what they do going forward, both in the run game and the pass game. I think that's going to be very interesting to see because he is a dynamic talent and arguably the most dynamic on the entire offensive side of the ball. Let's go to Chuck in Hamburg here. What do you got, Chuck? Hey, Chris, Steve. Hope you guys have a happy off season and, and mostly informative. My hope is that the unit that will look most different in 2024 is the special teams unit. Mm. From the Jets game to the last game in Kansas City, that's the unit that disappointed me most last season. I'll hang up and let you respond because John from Skinny Atlas was one long-winded dude. <laughs> one, guys. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for keeping wow. it brief. All right. Uh, wow, we got caller on caller fire there. Yeah, trying I will, to hold each other accountable. I will say there, there could be some change there for this reason. Some of the veteran special teamers that have been the core of that group are free agents. I'm talking about... People like uh, Cam Lewis is a free agent. He's been a gunner on this roster for the last couple of years, opposite Saran Neal. Tyler Matikavich is a free agent. He's been a special team stalwart here. He was signed as a free agent specifically for his special teams play. Tyrell Dotson, who cut his teeth in this league on that special teams unit, is a free agent. Ty Johnson, who returned kicks, is a free agent. There is a host of players on Buffalo's free agent list that were core special teams players. So they could experience some turnover there. And then, as Steve and I have discussed, punter and kicker, they could have some competition come into training yeah. camp. Not saying they'll replace them, but they're bringing in people to push them. Right. I and would be surprised if they don't. That's right. And we've talked also about you know the free agents that are there as well. But, um, yes, I, I think the biggest change is going to be in the punter kicker, if there is one, uh, I think they're gonna they're gonna bring those guys into some competition. Uh, you're right. There were times when the special teams 
played really well, made some plays that changed games. But they also had some huge gaffes. Opening weekend against the Jets, they gave up the overtime punt return uh, to lose it. Um, 12 they, men on the field. 12 men on the field against Denver to lose that there game. There were other long returns, there were too, against other, Yes, other long returns as well. So, yeah, it was a pretty disappointing year for those guys. Uh, special teams is a is a different animal than offense or defense. There is, it's hard to, there's no rhythm kind of thing in that game until late in the second half after you've covered four or five punts, you know, as a gunner. There's no rhythm. There's certainly no rhythm anymore with covering kickoffs because you rarely get to do that. Uh, you know, it's, it's one shot out of a game yeah, where you, you get plugged in for a play and then you're off the field. Um, field goal, field goal defense – you know, there's only because of the rules. There's only, there's no creativity. I mean, you just got to go, and it's a it's a one shot, real quick chance to to make a difference. The only chance you get really in field goal field goal defense is when somebody falls asleep at the switch up front and they let a guy through. Um, that doesn't happen very often, particularly in big games. Even though we saw it happen against the Niners and the Chiefs, both where one of them got blocked and the other one should have got blocked for one for each team. Yeah. Um, Special teams, it's hard to make a difference with a superlative play. It is easy to make a difference with a big mistake, and it's always the wrong difference you want to make. You know, so that's why special teams is a is a is not a balanced group. Yeah. It's very unbalanced. You got to you got to do everything right in order to get a push, hmm. and that's. It's a hard spot to play, but I would agree with you. There were too many times when it cost them the game. We're late to the break, so we got to step aside here. We'll lead off with Jim in Florida and others holding at 803-0550 as we are wide open for fall calls in hour number two here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. Presented by Kaleida Health. All right, hour number two here on a Thursday. Going to get right to the phone calls at 803-0550. Got some people waiting patiently, and we lead off with Jim in Florida. What do you got, Jim? Well, I want to say I watch you guys on TV down here every single day. Love the show. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Thanks. And uh, so um, um, my son and I both, uh, my son Jim was a ball boy. Um, when you guys are down in Flor- uh, Fredonia, and uh, I was a camp liaison when uh, Bud Carpenter, uh, before he became trainer down there or up there. So, anyways, I had uh, something I thought would help uh, the team Jim, next Jim, year. Jim, yes. How old are you? Uh, Seventy-seven. <laughs> okay, I would. That's younger than I would have guessed. <laughs> With the reference you just made, but thank you. I'll, go ahead, man. I, I go ahead. Yeah, I coach. I coach the track team uh, up there for years. But anyways, uh, so we've been uh, huge fans, and he lives in South Carolina, and I live in Florida. But anyways, uh, I think something that would help 
if you look back in the KC and New England are probably the two um, best clubs over the years as far as winning the Super Bowl. And they, they both had something in common, and that was an excellent tight end. We got Kelsey, and they had Grankowski on, at night at New England. Uh, I think that uh, those two people were huge um, a part of the, the championships that they won. And I think we've got the same type of individual on this team. Dalton Kincaid, I think, can be as good as Kelsey and Grankowski. And I think if we use him more, we're going to have a lot more success. So that's my thing. Okay. So you're you're thinking the way they can look different is more involvement with the tight end in the offense, make them more lethal as an offense, maybe go further in the playoffs as an offense. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a reasonable theory based on the examples you cited. Um, yeah, I, li- I mean, I like where you're – I like I see the logic of what you're saying. There are certain ingredients that every team has. And I heard somebody say, uh, I think it was Mark Schlereth, make the equation of, like, you go with Kansas City with – Travis Kelsey, Pat Mahomes, and Andy Reid. And you can go down the list of all those other greats with Gronkowski, Brady, and uh, Belichick. And you can go with uh, uh, Shanahan, Elway, and uh, the running back, who I can't think Terrell of. Davis. Terrell Davis. Uh, there's been like th- – and Troy Aikman, Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson, Emmitt Smith, uh, you know, all Michael those guys, Irvin. Michael Irvin. Uh, so there's a, a kind of a three thing there all the time, and the tight end is a, a big factor in it, although um, might be a stretch to say that's a, a, a characteristic now, uh, but you're right. I would say more so it comes down to special players, whether the guy's a tight end or a wide receiver. You're going to have some of that overlap because there's only 11 guys on the field, and your left guard is probably, as, as much res- love and respect as I have for Connor McGovern on the Bills, your left guard's probably not going to be the guy that puts you over the top for the Super Bowl. Uh, a tight end's got a chance at it. A running back's got a chance at it. Certainly the quarterback has a chance at it. Um, but if you're going to try and draw parallels and similarities between great teams who have done it recently, I see your logic about the tight end. But I don't know that I'd put it up there as the thing that puts the Bills over the hump. Let's go to Doc in Williamsville next. What's up, Doc? Thanks for taking my call, guys. A couple, I got a couple statements and then a question. I'm convinced that Brandon Bean will, again, do a great job through free agency and the draft, and I think our 53-man roster will be stronger than it is this year. My question is, what's the penalty for being over the salary cap? I'll hang up and let you guys answer. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's $5 million. Um, if you're not cap compliant, it's a $5 million fine. Um, more egregious abuse of the cap, like if you're barely over – you're fined $5 million. If you are egregiously over, they can dock you draft picks. Like That's how serious the penalties can get. So becoming cap compliant is not really an option. It is a must. Like has to happen. Flat out has to happen. Let's go to Jeff in Buffalo next. What do you got for us, Jeff? Jeff, are you there? All right, I'm going to put Jeff on hold. We'll come back to him next. We go to Bob in Kenmore. What do you got for us, Bob? Hey guys, uh, listen. A little while ago, you 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 said that uh, when it comes to draft picks, they uh, 
they uh, Beam and, and McDermott collaborate, but push comes to shove, the final call is Beam's. Now, my question is, what's the same, what's the dynamic? How does the dynamic play out? And when push comes to shove, who makes the final call when it comes to cuts, particularly at the end of the summer, the end of training camp? Well, who, who do you think is on the field with the players? I mean, Brandon Bean is going to listen to Sean McDermott and say, listen, I, I like this guy better than this guy because of A, B, and C. I mean, all you got to do is give the, make the case, and Brandon Bean's going to say, okay. Uh, and then not only will he make the case for having that guy released – He'll also make a case for why well, I want a guy that's different because of I want this, 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 and this characteristic in that guy. So Brandon Bean will go out and find that guy. So um, the cuts, Brandon Bean is going to listen to. In training camp, the coaching staff meets every single night. And they will have player reports. The guy will sit up and stand up and say, listen, all right, give me the, give me the list of your guy. Give me the guys. How about, you know, the, he'll start from the top and go all the way down through. And they'll give a list of why the guy's good, why he's bad, what he's, the, a whole report about how the guy's practicing, his attitude, all the highlights of what that guy's doing in training camp, and that will be the report on that guy. And, they, and so Brandon Bean is in all those meetings, and he listens to the evaluation of all these guys that he has signed to contracts. He listens to the guys who are coaching him tell him how – good those guys are in our system, in our practice with our coaches and our teammates. And then the evaluation goes on from there, and it becomes obvious as training camp goes on who's going to make it, who's not. And which guy they'd like to make it probably is not going to make it, but they think he's got a chance to be really good later on, and we can hide him on the practice squad kind of guys. All those conversations, that's kind of the way it goes. So bottom line is – Brandon Bean makes the decisions on the 53-man roster, but it's with heavy consultation, daily consultation with Sean McDermott. And this is why it's important for the long-term success of an organization to have a GM and a head coach who are in lockstep with one another. When you start pulling people from different places or one person is brought on before the other, sometimes that mesh between their two philosophies isn't always in sync. And that's why knowing that McDermott and Bean had a prior working relationship in Carolina made the, the merging of their two philosophies here right. so seamless. And it's why when you have a GM making those bottom-line decisions on the 53-man roster, it goes a lot more smooth than it would in a different dynamic between GM and head coach. Yeah. But, yes, GM makes the 53. The coach decides who's up on game day during right. the season. But – don't think that doesn't come with heavy consultation from the GM as well, because here I'm pretty confident it does. So, yes, this guy is assigned to this, that guy's assigned to that, but it's not without crosstalk right. every single day. They both see players the same way. Like, like I, I want In players. Most cases. I want players that are this smart, this gutsy, this tough, this blah 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 blah. The whole thing. And if if a great athlete, if it's outstanding athlete has this and this characteristic, I don't care. We don't want him kind of thing. You know, there are certain guys, and they both see that the same way. So if Brandon, if Sean McDermott goes, well, how come we, what, tell me about that guy. Why, how come he, we didn't draft him when we had the chance? And Brandon will say, because he's an axe murderer. And <laughs> Sean will go, I get it, thanks. That kind of thing, right? I'm, I'm exaggerating, obviously, to make a point. Uh, because he's got one of the things that you and I don't like in a player. And that, you know, so that's why he didn't draft him. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 
I'm, I'm being facetious, yes. of, obviously. I hope everybody It was an knows. interesting choice. Axe yes. Murder. Well, yes. there you go. That makes the point, I think, stronger uh, than... Right. No pun intended. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, let's get back to the phones, and we go to Mitchell in Pittsburgh Nets. What's up, Mitchell? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, so, for off-season moves, I think um, a lot of people are overlooking the fact that Tredavious White's probably going to get cut um, after June 1st. He saves us around $6.5 million in cap, I think. And then, because um, there, there's no way he's he's starting over Benford or Douglas, um, unless we moved him to safety. But if he's not starting, the salary's not worth it. And um, another thing is I think it's possible. I was wondering if you guys think it is, too, if um, – I think Dawson Knox could get shot for a trade, too. Um, to not be a starting tight end, I don't think he's worth the money. And we're tight, so I think it's really realistic that we do end up trading him because I think that's around $11 million in cap if we do trade him for next year. So I think um, I just want to hear you guys' thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think the first part of your comment is a possibility. I think they'd prefer to avoid it, but they would save $6 million. Um, and maybe a lot of that has to do with how his health is coming along and his rehabilitation and the future of his playing career. The problem is they may not know that by mid-March when they have to be cap compliant. So what are they doing? Are they going to sign him to a modest extension and spread his money out, try to give him more time, or do they make that very difficult decision? Um, because you're talking about a cornerstone player of the organization. As for Dawson Knox, I don't think trading him is an option here because he costs more to move him off your roster than it is to keep him on your roster. He's a $14.3 million cap hit. I agree with you, Mitchell. That is too high a price for a guy who's probably not going to be your number one tight end on the roster. Um, the problem is if you move him via trade or release him, it's $20.2 million on your cap. So it actually costs you almost $7 million more to get rid of him than it is to keep him. So I think the more likely scenario here is they add a year to his contract, spread out some of that money, or ask him to restructure or flat out take a pay cut. Don't think that's not yeah, an option they, either. They could restructure, then trade him, I guess. But I don't know how much that would help. That would help him next, this yeah, well, year, Yeah, you're going to jump through year. all those hoops anyway. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's true. They, they do have some work to do. Uh, with the salary cap, no question about with it. With some top, familiar names. The top guys on the roster are Josh, Steph, Vaughn, Dion, Tredavious, Dawson, Milano, and Taron Johnson are the top seven guys. All of those guys uh, have money that they could rework easily, um, all the way down from, top, from Josh all the way down to Taron. And then behind Taron, it's Mitch Morse. All of those guys are making eight figures. That means ten million or more, so you could work all of those those that money around and get a lot of cap space from. Because here's the thing: if you're you're right now, if they're thinking may, maybe Trey White is going to get cut, that's different. But if all those guys are going to be on the ones you pick, think are going to be on the team, like Mitch Morse, Taron Johnson, Milano, uh, Dion, Steph, Josh, all of those guys, you, they're going to be on the team. So whatever off-season bonuses and roster bonuses and making the team bonuses, you can give it to them because they're gonna you're gonna give it to them anyway. If you give it to them now, you can spread it out over the life of their contract and take all that money off the cap uh, or whatever money you don't pay them 
this year off the cap. So that's what they're probably going to do at some point to some extent. But when you're talking about releasing guys, there's no way of, of us anticipating that. Yeah, uh, As obvious as it may be to us, they may not be in that headspace. Trey, they, might, they may not be considering cutting Trey. They may want him back. And they may yeah. want to. They may want to move him. It's Who more knows? complicated than a math equation for them, yes. uh, than it is for us just looking at the numbers. Let's go to Ray J in Buffalo next. What do you got for us, Ray J? Uh, good afternoon. How are you guys doing? Good. Today? Good. Uh, I I know this is going to be a popular take, but um, my uh, question is: How do you guys feel about possibly trading Deion Dawkins and seeing what his trade value is, and? Uh, taking advantage of maybe one of the more deeper parts of the draft this year, which is offensive tackle and wide receiver. Yeah. I mean, I, I get what you're saying there, Ray J, but I think you're, you're creating a hole on your roster and adding to your list of needs. I think the easier solution there is to just sign Dion to a contract extension. He's only 29 years old. He's in the last year of his deal. Um, he is a prime candidate in my estimation, for a contract extension. And then you can spread out the money whichever way helps you best on your current cap. You could have him making, instead of making 9.3 in base salary and having a cap hit this year of 16.6, you could sign him to a contract extension, drop his base salary to like a million dollars, and save yourself a ton on the cap this year with an extension. I think that's the more likely scenario. Right. And you could... Um, if you do trade him, I want to know what you're getting. Are you getting a one? If you're getting a one, I'll listen. Depends on who it's from. If you're getting a one, and let me just, I'll, I will once again exaggerate to make my, you know, make my point. If you're going to get a one and you're going to get it from the New York Giants and you move up to number six, okay. Well, I'll, I'll listen to that. Yeah. You know, uh, but it's a huge, huge gray area from moving inside the top 10 of the NFL draft to getting a third-round pick at number, you know, 84. I mean, yeah, not so much. Yeah. I mean, you do save $5 million if you move him off your roster, but I think a contract extension, you can find a way to save even more than that via an extension, and he's still playing at a Pro Bowl level at age 30, so... In my mind, I, I think the extension is what makes sense there. And, and that's another cornerstone player on your roster. You don't just want to toss him overboard because the money's not right, especially when you have a solution in the form of a contract extension to take care of it. Right. Let's, that's uh, a big – I, I see the logic of it, but that, it depends on the compensation. Yeah. I mean, you, every, certainly everybody is up for trades. Professional sports and all these guys are, you know, for the lack of a better thing, they're cattle, right? I mean, you're yeah. gonna, that, people are going to offer you stuff for them. Well, some guys go far and above their value on a piece of paper. Uh-huh. Got to take a break here. John in Buffalo, Jason in Rhode Island, Gerald in Buffalo. We'll get to you when we return. As so we're asking you, where will the Bills look most different in 2024? Your thoughts next here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. All right, back here on One Bills Live. Going to jump right back on the phones as we're asking you, 
where will the Bills be most different in 2024? Your thoughts are needed at 803-0550. We lead off with John in Buffalo. What's up, John? Yeah, thinking about the Bills for next season, I'm concerned about two players. One would be the status of uh, Akeem Hines, and the other one is uh, DeMar Hamlin. I know he didn't dress for a bunch of games, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on those two guys. And uh, one more little thing. what is the Bills going to have the Wall of Fame in the new stadium? And I'll hang up and listen to your answer. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, sure thing, John. Um, DeMar Hamlin's answering the last year of his rookie contract. Um, he was buried on the depth chart behind veterans. You know, Taylor Rapp came in. You already had Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. And Cam Lewis is a more versatile player on game day because he is a gunner on special teams, can play nickel in case Taron Johnson's injured, and can play safety. So because of those reasons, DeMar Hamlin was more often than not on the game day inactive list. He only played in five games this season and was mostly on special teams. He's going to have an uphill battle again this year, although Mm -hmm. the deck right now is a little bit cleared. Cam Lewis, free agent. Taylor Rapp, free agent. Uh, Micah Hyde, free agent. So how many of them come back will largely determine his chance uh, to get back on the field. Who was the other player? Naheem Hines. Yeah, Naheem Hines still rehabbing from his ACL knee injury. Brandon Bean at the season-ending press conference said they do want him on this roster, but there is another guy who is a candidate for a salary restructure um, and can save them money on the cap by doing so. And knowing he wants to get his career started again uh, after an unfortunate jet skiing accident, uh, I would think he might be amenable to that so he knows he's got a job going into next fall. Yeah, you got to feel for Naheem because he was just sitting there idling, putting gas in his in his jet, jet ski, yeah. and somebody ran into him. Yeah, he was just sitting there. Um, yeah, it's just it's unfortunate. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So he loses a year of his career because of it. Yeah. And as for the Wall of Fame, it's our understanding it will live in the new stadium in some iteration. I don't know if it's going to look exactly the same. The configuration of the stadium is probably going to have something to do with that. But I think it will be um, properly transported in some way, shape, or form to recognize uh, the people that are up on that wall, like this guy to my left. Uh, Let's go to Jason in Rhode Island. What's up, Jason? Hey, Chris and Steve. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, First, to answer your question, it it seems like defensive line – is a good candidate for the biggest turnover, mm-hmm. knowing the way they like to rotate guys in and out. And, Chris, I think you said only four out of 12 of the guys yeah. that were on the roster this year are under contract for next year. That's but correct. What I, what I really wanted to call about was a um, previous caller called uh, to say that he was most disappointed by special teams. And I was hoping Steve might shed a little light on how the injuries may have played a part in that. I, I don't think people understand how hard it is to go out there and play you know, a bunch of plays on defense and then have to chase down a guy uh, on three or four punts. So uh, it seems like that may have played a part in it. And then maybe even on the, the Denver game, it uh, seemed like maybe there was some confusion. Leonard Floyd didn't know if he was still in or out for somebody that may have been hurt. So I'm, I'm hopeful that if they can get the injuries under control, that, that maybe that'll help that situation as well. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, I th- you're right. Defensive line is going to look very different. We were talking earlier about the special teams. Um, one of the things people don't realize, the and if you, and I hate to say it like this, but the top of your roster, bottom of your roster, the, the and then between the bottom of your roster and the guys that are on the field all the time are the guys that play special teams, professional special teams players. 
They're the, they're backups of the regular down and distance players. They're backup linebackers, backup safeties, backup DBs, backup tight ends, backup wide whatever. And they but they're what they really do is they're professional special teams guys. Um, so you can imagine they're the guys that back up the guys that are on the field. Now, when guys on the field like Mambalano, like Poyer, Hyde, Tredavious White, when all those guys start going down, when Daquan Jones, all of that stuff, when those guys start going down, well, those guys that have been playing all these special teams move up. It's just the way it is. They're they're the next guy in, right? So we say next man up. The problem is now you got guys off the street who you're trying to find the best safety, backup linebacker, backup corner, backup tight end, you're trying to find the best one of those. Those guys may or may not have any experience covering kicks, but they're covering kicks because everybody else is playing down or distance. So when a team has is deep, like the Bills were at the beginning of the year, they can kind of hang in there defensively and offensively but with because they got quality backups and all of that. But as those injuries take form, the place it shows is special teams. Yeah. Because now you've got Tommy Schmegmahoyten and Billy Bag of Donuts covering kicks for you who were washing cars and doing dishes last week. I'm exaggerating again. Yes. But that's it. So the, the injuries to teams usually show themselves, at least whether they show or not is, is one thing. But they're usually felt on the roster on special teams first, particularly on a team like the Bills, who are deep and have a lot of talent behind their front line guys. But when those guys move up to play offense and defense, now you got to have different guys covering kicks, and those are the guys where it shows up. There's where your defensive injuries show up. You can't cover kicks. You can't cover punch. You can't protect for field goals. You can't protect your punter. You can't cover a punt. You can't tackle anybody all of a sudden because you got these guys that aren't good special teams players, but they were the best defensive back available. That's how sometimes that yeah. manifests itself. Let's move on to Gerald in Buffalo. What do you got for us, Gerald? You're on One Bills Live. Hey, Chris. Hey, Steve. Um, I'm a diehard Bills fan. And um, just to say, uh, you should be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know what they're waiting on. But um, – Thanks. Two things. I know we play zone, but do you think the Bills should go to the bump and run, especially when we playing against a team like Kansas City that's got a, a, a superstar tight end and a quarterback to play bump and run off the line? And on the other side of the ball, do you think the Bills should go to a hurry-up offense with all the weapons that we have on offense and run some type of audible? I don't think they run audibles a lot when they get to the line. I don't know if it's the personnel or that's just the way that they run the offense. But Yeah, I mean, I, I will say they run a lot of the RPO game, Gerald, where, you know, Josh has the run, run play and a pass play to choose from based on what the defensive look is. So very often he's going to the line of scrimmage with two plays at his disposal. Um, so that kind of serves as a built-in audible, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times you'll hear him come up to the line when he's standing back there in shotgun and go kill, kill, kill which means he's killing the first play and going to the second one. Right. So there are a lot of built-in audibles with you know the RPO game, which the Bills run a good deal of. That's first. As for no huddle, Steve and I have talked about this several times. Steve's team was very successful doing that back in the 90s. That was 30 years ago. Sorry, it's been a bit. Um, it's been a minute. The game yeah. has changed. And 
when you go that fast, you have to simplify your offense. And defenses are too sophisticated these days. They would get a beat on what you're running, even at a high rate of speed, because your menu's reduced. And once they get a handle on that, they can defend you more effectively. And as a matter of fact, we saw that in Week 8, Bills against the Bucks here at the stadium. The Bills were so desperate to find something to establish a rhythm on offense, they went no huddle from the jump. And those first couple of series, it worked. The first two or three possessions, I think they came away with 10 points. They finally had a lead early in a football game, which they did not have for the past four, the previous four games. But by the end of the game, what happened? The Bucks defense caught up to them and they held them scoreless for like six of their last seven possessions, which is an example of what would happen if you ran that every week. Um, I think the more, the more obvious play nowadays is what they call tempo. You jump into an up-tempo mode in the middle of a series. You get a personnel grouping you like on defense, bang, we're going to jump into up-tempo, keep that unit on the field, we're going to go fast, we're going to get on the ball fast so they can't substitute, and now we have them in an advantageous personnel grouping where we can take advantage of them. Whether it's they got little people on the field and we can run it at them, or they got big people on the field and we can throw it against them because they can't cover. That's right. the way you use up-tempo football nowadays. Right, and, and, and this... Uh the the reason you don't go no huddled as well is is when in this zone and bump and run defense and all that this they'll go up and run the play and they will audible a lot of times they don't have to audible because the only question is are they playing zone or man now they may try if they try and that's why the quarterback will give a fake count and then after the fake count he'll get an idea of somebody's coming and he'll say okay this is the guy that's coming here's we'll set our protection and then they've got it protected now they've got answers in the back end of the of the defense where they can take advantage of it and that's what that's the way offenses operate now they find out about the defense at the line of scrimmage, which means they don't snap it fast. Mm-hmm. They find out about the defense, and they know where their answer is. If they're going to go cover two, they got this answer. If they're going cover three, they got that answer. If they're going man-to-man, they have another answer. The offense is built to have answers no matter what the defense does. If you know what's coming, and that's why you see these quarterbacks – tinker with the cadence so often in the NFL, and they use motion to find something out about the defense. So if the offense knows what's coming defensively, they got you. Yeah, and as for the defense, you know, are they based on zone principles? Yes, they don't play exclusively zone. As a matter of fact, Sean McDermott played almost everything under the sun this season because he was so shorthanded due to injury. I mean, he played cover zero. They did play some press man. I mean, they everything under the sun – he called this year because he had to. He had to try to find a way to scheme more out of the defense with less personnel. Now, what's it going to look like next year? Is Bobby Babbage calling it? Is Sean McDermott calling it? We don't know yet. Um, so that's something that's yet to be determined, and we'll have to wait and see what that looks like this coming season. But I think we can safely say that it will be the more aggressive style that we saw from Sean McDermott this past year in terms of calling this defense than what we saw in previous years with Leslie Frazier. It was effective in a different way, and I think Sean McDermott wanted his defense to be more aggressive, create more splash plays, and so as a result, you did see more man coverage from them uh, this year. And, you know, that has its pluses and minuses too. I I was really, really happy with the way the defense played this year with Sean McDermott, even despite – what you could see behind the injuries, um, I thought they picked their spots for pressures exactly right. 
Um, I thought they had more, obviously more splash plays. And, and another reason I liked it was because it's exactly what you and I said they were going to do <laughs> all through the last <laughs> offseason. It's exactly what you and I thought the defense might change, yeah. how it might change. And they they finished, might get more splash plays. They finished top five in takeaways and top five in sacks. Uh, let's go to Mark in Rochester next. What's up, Mark? Hey, guys. Uh, real quick, um, this is the little off subject of today's show. But yesterday, I get to listen to you guys for about the last half hour of, of your show. And yesterday, you guys had a caller. It was an older guy, and he was talking about the Bills' offensive line and how they couldn't protect Josh. And, and listening to him, I'm yelling at the radio saying they were probably one of the best offensive lines we've had in years. Yeah. He kept on reiterating the point that, you know, people couldn't pick up that extra blitzer or whatever. And he said he hadn't seen anybody pick up that extra blitzer other than Cookie Gilchrist was the best he's ever seen. And, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a guy in the early 90s, I'm pretty sure you played with them, that wore number 34, that was really, really good at that. Yeah, listen, people see what they want, and, I, and I, I'm not going to disparage what the guy said. He sees what he says. He thinks what he thinks, and there's no question. Cookie Gilchrist was a phenomenal player, no question, a gifted. Um, but, yeah, we explained, I thought, yesterday after the call why we respectfully didn't agree with everything the guy said. Go ahead. Anything else, Mark? No, he, I think that was his point. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, right after the, you know, the guy hung up, I pointed out that the Bills led the league in sack percentage allowed led the league. I mean, and I we've had fans call and say this. I share the opinion. I think it was the best offensive line the Bills have had in the McDermott era. Yes. Left I, to right, you know. Um the most consistent play we've seen out of them and that's that's with a rookie at right guard. Um you know, and a and a player in Spencer Brown that was looking for redemption and had his best season in a Bills uniform last year yeah, so I, I, it yeah. really came to and Connor mcgovern as an addition was fantastic i mean it, it's the best offensive line i think they've had left to right since mcdermott became and head they, coach they played like it i thought I, you know i yes and if you're worried about an extra rusher coming in if they send more guys than you have blockers you can't block every nobody's going to block two guys unless they get lucky um so if there's an extra rusher, it's, that's what it is, an extra rusher. That's on Josh and the offensive coordinator to pick that up, move the protection to where you have the, the least the least threatening guy is the one you don't block. And they're good enough up front to slide one way or the other or make a zone call as to pick up everybody except the furthest guy away or the guy that's the least dangerous. They have that ability, and they did that very well this year. And then – if they do get to Josh, if they do have a free rusher, that's on Josh. He's yeah. got to he's got to get rid of the football, and he's got to have an answer in the passing game for him to do that. Break time for us here. We'll get some final thoughts on the tweet sheet when we return here on One Bills Live. Stay tuned. Back here on One Bills Live. Where will the Bills look most different in 2024? To the tweet sheet we go. Brought to you by Corrigan Moving Systems, the official equipment moving company of the Buffalo Bills. Mickey says the whole team will look different. Least amount of change will probably be the O-line. That's a good guess because they are all under contract for next year. Matthew says they will look most different in age. They will let a lot of expiring contracts go of aging players and allow younger talent to take over. Robert says defense just because of all the holes they may have. Jess says wide receiver room 
hopefully. Buffalo guy in Cincy says the secondary seems like the obvious choice. Uh, that's kind of where I was coming from. And Dagger says defensive line will have a complete overhaul aside from Ed and Rousseau. As we mentioned, only four of 12 on the roster in 2023 on the defensive line are under contract for 2024. I'm still, I'm still on the Von Miller train. I, I still yeah, think he's got a lot of football. It's too problem, cost prohibitive to move on right, from anyway. Plus, I, here's the thing that I'm fearful of. If he comes back and he has a great training camp, I, I don't, you, at his age, injury becomes a real concern going forward. It, they have a hard time. We have a hard time staying healthy when you get to your mid-30s, which is where Von Miller is. That's why, you know, Poyer, Hyde, all these guys um, have a hard time staying in, on the field because their age prohibits it because of injuries. Um, young guys seem to stay healthier and heavy guys seem to stay healthier so yeah you know when you've got a fast light team you get banged up too much well yeah let me just generalize completely and say yeah that do you want to do say something else hyperbolic today too to no, make a point or? no I've, I've made a lot of points <laughs> as crystal clear as i can possibly i'm exaggerating make to make a point we need to get that on a t-shirt that's right we already have you need to play well on that day on a shirt. Maybe that could be second in line. Yeah. We gotta have a get a whole t shirt line of Taskerisms. That would be I think that's a tasty business idea. That's how it's gonna go. Well that's, that's how it's gonna be. That's how it's gonna be. Yeah. That's how it's gonna be. We're back tomorrow with OBL Friday fan mailbag. We'll see you at one. <laughs>